It's a good day, Minnesota. It proves once again that our democracy is strong, that compromise is a virtue, not a vice, and that setting down and... It's not good enough to stand at a microphone and say that you made a deal. Uh, what it is good enough to do is to, to get in there and get your job done, uh, which Democrats have absolutely failed to do. From the Minnesota Reformer, this is Reformer Radio. I'm Max Nesterak. On Monday, Minnesota's DFL and Republican leaders announced broad budget targets for a $52 billion two-year budget. We worked late into the night, and um, sooner or later we had to come to a place of what we're going to set for targets. Uh, It's never, ever easy when you have divided government. The news of their deal came on the last day of the legislative session and without any agreements on the controversial policy questions that animated the session. I think of this as a numbers-only agreement. Some of the policy issues we're, we're still working on, uh, related to emergency powers, related to police accountability. This week, my colleague Ricardo Lopez recaps a chaotic and unusual legislative session that's still not quite over. It's Friday, May 21st. So, Ricardo, take us back to the start of the legislative session and really set the scene for us. So because it's an odd year, the session starts early on January 5th to give lawmakers enough time to pass a new two-year budget. There's optimism because two vaccines are approved and nearly 100,000 Minnesotans have been vaccinated. COVID-19 cases are beginning to taper off to such an extent that the governor announces he's going to start lifting some COVID-19 restrictions. First tonight here at 6, breaking news. Minnesota's governor says he will loosen his closure order on thousands of businesses, including bars and restaurants, this week. And that's not the only good news. The state has enough vaccine on hand for hospital staff at highest risk of contracting the disease, as well as most nursing home residents. But this optimism is tempered by the fact that thousands of Minnesotans are still being infected every day. Today's total might appear smaller. It is smaller compared to some of the high totals we saw in November and December. But this still represents a very high level of COVID-19 transmission in communities across the state. At the same time, there's a lot of uncertainty about the state's budget picture. At this point, legislators have to close an $883 million budget deficit. But they do have $1.8 billion in the budget reserve. Because voters elected a divided legislature again, these negotiations are going to be difficult, and even more so because all of their work is going to be done remotely this year. People are also hoping that the federal government passes another round of COVID-19 relief, but it's unclear if we're going to see any of that come to the state because that all depends on who controls the U.S. Senate. At this point, the Georgia runoff races are still being decided. Mm -hmm. The session starts January 5th. The next day is January 6th when we have a mob of pro-Trump supporters invade the Capitol in D.C. to stop the certification of the 2020 election. Right. And as this is happening in D.C., here in St. Paul, there's an event at the Capitol called Storm the Capitol. Although it's interesting because organizers specifically told attendees not to storm the Capitol. Um, But nonetheless, there's a lot of violent rhetoric that is featured at the event. We are at the threshold of a civil war. Patriots, over one million patriots stormed. Wherever they were, I think it was the White House grounds, I believe. Now you know why Trump wanted us there. 
there's a lot of talks about, you know, sort of taking back government and, and really, you know, standing up to these claims of election fraud. Steve Simon, the Secretary of State, and Keith Ellison, the Attorney General, who were supposed to defend our laws that said, you can't do that. So this big group of people eventually migrates to the residence um, where the Minnesota State Patrol evacuates the governor's son because of the, how tense the situation got. The rally ends peacefully, but there was enough violent rhetoric um, that leads the DFL-controlled house to open an investigation into the six House Republicans who attended. So the political tension is at 100. So just to recap, the state is in crisis and having to legislate over Zoom What do state lawmakers want to achieve and what do they need to achieve? Well, the one thing that they need to achieve is to pass a new two-year budget. Without it, large swaths of government begin to shut down. State government employs nearly 48,000 people. Governor Walls and Democrats say they're focused on helping the state recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. They want to increase payments in the state's welfare program as well as the child care assistance program. Democrats also proposed bonding to help some of the businesses that were destroyed from during the riots last summer. To pay for some of these priorities, Walls proposes a new tax bracket for the richest Minnesotans as well as raising taxes on large corporations. But I'm guessing Senate Republicans do not want to raise taxes. No, in fact, immediately after Walls unveils his tax the rich plan, Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka exclaims, Thank, Thank God, God that Republicans have the majority in the Senate. Uh, Republicans promise there's going to be no new taxes during an economic downturn, and instead they say we should be focusing on cutting state government, proposing 5% across the board cuts. Um, Also, Gazelka, who first declared the pandemic was over last summer, continues to call for Walls to relinquish his emergency powers. Ricardo, I'm curious what's it like covering the legislature remote? Normally, reporters and lobbyists are roaming the halls of the state capitol, but that's not happening. Not this year. Like much of America, I was in sweatpants, working from home, watching committee hearings, floor sessions, and attending press conferences via Zoom. The first day of session is usually feels like the first day back at school Mm -hmm. where you're reunited with all your classmates and friends and there's a buzzy energy and excitement about the months ahead. This year, we had none of that. And in addition, we had a lot less access to our lawmakers who we were left to try to reach by phone or by email. Usually you can try to ambush a lawmaker who's ducking your calls uh, by catching them before or after a committee hearing or grab them on the House and Senate floor. Um, There were some upsides to the remote work. It made it much easier to file stories quickly because you don't have to walk back and forth from press conferences and things like that. Um, But all in all, it was it was very it felt like a very disjointed, very disconnected legislative session. So what's the first major conflict we see? Well, among Republicans, we have this continued ongoing grumbling about the governor's executive powers. This has been the longest peacetime emergency powers ever. Each month that the governor has called a special session to extend the peacetime emergency, which gives him all the power to you know, run vaccination sites, testing sites and things like that. Also mandate masks. Also mandate masks. Um, Senate Republicans and House Republicans try to force a vote to strip him of those powers. The ending of emergency powers is more about cooperation and the citizen's voice. Because we have been subject to to a governor that has decided to abuse the statute of emergency powers. In the Senate, they succeed in the House because the Democrats control the House. 
Republicans there are not successful. But nonetheless, Republicans, you know, are, are doing this to make a point. They want walls to let youth sports leagues play without any restrictions. Uh, they want them to lift his eviction moratorium, and they want the state to operate without any COVID-19 mandates. So while Republicans are grumbling about these powers, there's an interesting fault line that develops on the Democratic side. As we come into the session, they all are pretty united on a couple key priorities. Um, but that division we start to see is when the governor asks the legislature for $35 million for something he's calling a SAFE account. SAFE stands for State Aid for Emergencies. And it's an account that he wants to be able to reimburse law enforcement agencies who help out during the murder trial of former Minneapolis cop Derek Chauvin for killing George Floyd. So this $35 million safe account, the impetus is the Chauvin trial, but this fund wouldn't just fund uh, security measures for the Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, right? Right. I mean, the creation of this fund essentially makes it available to any any law enforcement agency in the future or cities that find themselves um, dealing with the same types of large protests um, or anything like that. Um, and so... You know, as it's being discussed, there's a mass shooting. We're going to turn now to some breaking news out of Minnesota, where a gunman is under arrest tonight after opening fire at a health care clinic in, in the, the small, small exurban city of Buffalo. Yeah, Lauren, this community is devastated, especially now as word begins to spread across the community that one of the victims has died. Uh, so Minneapolis sends its resources to aid Buffalo, which includes a bomb squad. And Walls and Democrats point to that as an example of how law enforcement agencies all help one another. And it's important that they feel that they can do that. Okay, so where's the agreement and the disagreement over the safe account? So while there is broad agreement that the state should step up and help pay for law enforcement costs, uh, the details are where people get hung up on, especially among House Democrats. In the House, State Representative Carlos Mariani, who is a longtime Democrat who represents St. Paul, um, is carrying the governor's bill. And he's also a member of the People of Color and Indigenous Caucus. They don't want to give law enforcement all this money without getting something in return. They want a model state policy that says this is how you deal with large crowds. They also want to be able to hold individual officers who violate that policy accountable. Um, and this is because Twin Cities Democrats are remembering how demonstrators as well as journalists were treated in the wake of Floyd's death with tear gas and rubber bullets. Republicans balked at all of that. They said we should just pass the $35 million without any any of this language, just a clean bill, just the way Walls had requested. Mariani agrees to to that compromise, so he removes some of the teeth from the proposal in order to win some support from Republicans. Um, and so this is a very difficult place that the governor and DFL leaders are trying to navigate. Um, and ultimately, the bill comes to the floor. There being 63 ayes and 71 nays, the motion does not prevail. The bill is not adopted. And faces an embarrassing defeat because progressives withhold their votes. Mm, so that does not look good. No. Normally, when you bring a, a bill to the floor, you have the votes to pass it. Um, so this is something that really, um, really embarrasses House Democrats who did not have the votes within their own caucus to pass it. So they ended up tabling the measure. House file 445 now be laid on the table. All those in favor, please say aye. aye. Those opposed, please say no. Aye. The motion prevails. House file 445 is laid on the table. No. Okay, so this doesn't pass. And then Minneapolis is left wondering how it's going to pay for this upcoming trial 
of Derek Chauvin with media flying in from all over the world. Right. I mean, Minneapolis doesn't have the luxury to just kind of sit around and wait for this money. They continue planning, um, thinking that maybe it's possible that this money comes later, but it's unclear who's going to end up footing this bill. Um, I think this story is important to tell because it's indicative of this larger divide between Democrats and Republicans and between Democrats themselves over policing. It's a wedge issue. And the larger point of this fight is that in Minnesota, as the Black Lives Matter movement has gained traction and, and gotten bigger, progressives in the House are now more willing to buck with fellow Democrats to call t- attention to this issue of police brutality in their communities. Once upon a time, Democrats in Minnesota were, were really reluctant to publicly criticize the police here. President Joe Biden signs the American Rescue Plan Act into law in March This is the $1.9 trillion bill with billions coming to Minnesota. How does that affect budget negotiations? So to take a step back, just a month before the February budget forecast showed we went from a deficit to a massive surplus of $1.8 billion. That surprised many at the Capitol. They were not expecting to see a surplus. And the state economists actually credited that that the previous rounds of stimulus, which helped shore up the national economy and anticipated that that the new COVID relief package would also similarly help improve the state's budget picture. That effectively takes the air out of the balloon over the debate over potential cuts to state government uh, and makes it now a fight over how to divvy up the surplus dollars. So speaking of state aid, let's talk about aid for businesses destroyed during last year's unrest following Floyd's death. That's a top priority for Democrats from Minneapolis and St. Paul. This was held over from last summer. We saw hundreds of millions of dollars in damage happen to small businesses, many of them owned by people of color. A lot of the insurance payouts did not cover the full costs of repairing the damage or even demolition. And Democrats say that the state should treat this like any type of natural disaster. Anytime there are floods or tornadoes, or even an outbreak of the bird flu among livestock, the state always sends money to help these communities to recover. Twin Cities Democrats pitch a $300 million plan which uses some of the surplus, which would send state aid to help these business owners who saw their livelihoods go up in smoke. But Senate Republicans say no. In fact, they say that the rest of the state should not bail out Minneapolis and St. Paul for letting their cities burn. And this leads to some of the biggest debates and confrontations in the Senate floor. Senator Patricia Torres Ray, a Democrat from Minneapolis, shoots down this allegation that Minneapolis is getting bailed out using some pretty tough words. We have a tax base that supports rural Minnesota because your communities are declining. You do not have a tax base as big as mine. Our taxes pay for your roads, for your police officers, many things. I hope you remember that my city is in need today. Those words immediately went out on social media. Republicans picked them up with the tagline that said, this is what Democrats think of you, rural Minnesotans. So no state relief for businesses destroyed during the civil unrest? None. And then in April, before there's a verdict in the Chauvin trial, Dante Wright is shot and killed by a police officer in Brooklyn Center. How does that change the trajectory of the legislative session? Well, it catapults the issue of police reform right back to the top of Democrats' priorities for the session. 
Over the course of the week, there are widespread protests outside of the Brooklyn Center Police Department, and there's also immense pressure from constituents for Democrats to do something. In fact, Walls joins and he says, I will burn my political capital. He's willing to burn his political capital in order to pass something, and he insists that it be part of the mix at the end of the session. I won't say anything particular around the strategy of doing it other than I'm going to approach it with the sense of goodwill and the belief that we're all going to get there because I don't know how you could be sitting anywhere in Minnesota today and not see that something has to change. House Democrats also come up with about a dozen policy proposals that they want to see enacted. They include things like ending traffic stops for low-level offenders. They want to see civilian oversight boards. They want to see the end to no-knock warrants. And they also want to require that law enforcement agencies um, allow families of shooting victims to view body cam footage within 48 hours. And they also propose banning cops from associating with white supremacist groups. So after this, on April 20th, Chauvin is convicted on all three counts of murder and manslaughter. How does Minneapolis end up paying the bill for security? Well, in the end, late in the session, the legislature passes a bill that the governor had requested um, with about $7.6 million to help pay for all this extra law enforcement. It passes the Senate and it passes the House without the support of many progressive Democrats from the Twin Cities. They vote no because, like the Save Account, they also want more police reform and accountability following Dante Wright's death and accountability for the way that the police treated demonstrators and journalists in Brooklyn Center. So Walls and legislative Democrats see Dante's Wright death and the police response to protests as an imperative that they must pass more reform. How do Republicans respond? Initially, Gazelka, who again controls everything that the Senate does, says he'll hold more hearings on police reform, but he also is very careful to say that it's not a promise to do anything, but that they'll listen. But once Chauvin is convicted, it takes the pressure off. Gazelka says the conviction shows that the system worked and that justice was served. Once that happened, uh, the, the pressure here uh, uh, went down dramatically. And since this is coming at the end of the budget session, Gazelka says his priority is getting a budget passed. I want to zoom out here. During a divided legislature, you have both chambers passing bills they know will never make it to the governor's desk, uh, but they do so anyways to show their priorities and to show voters what they'll do if they get the majority. Can you run those down for us? Right. I mean, nobody ever wants to get elected and then not do the things that they said they would do once they're elected. So on the Democratic side, it's legalizing recreational marijuana. I recognize the author, Representative Winkler, uh, who will explain the bill. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Members, House File 600 legalizes cannabis for adult use in Minnesota. It expunges criminal records related to past cannabis convictions. We've seen this massive evolution on the DFL side on this issue in just a few years. And in fact, legalizing marijuana has become more broadly popular in the state, including among Republicans. So there's a political advantage to going out strong on this issue. Democrats also were burned this past election cycle when the rise of third party candidates who were for legalizing marijuana managed to siphon away enough votes from Democrats to give Republicans a win in some key races. House Majority Leader Ryan Winkler ultimately pulls together this bill with many town halls held around the state and a dozen hearings in the House. It passes the House with Republican votes in the final days of session. This puts Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelk on the spot. 
He's opposed, and he says he won't bring the bill to a vote in the Senate, so it fails. Well, the marijuana bill in the Senate is up in smoke. That's not going to happen. But, uh... <laughs> How about on the Senate side? On the Senate side, Republicans bring back a proposal to require state ID to vote. This is a perennial issue for Republicans who have said that they want to make voting more secure. Opponents, largely Democrats, say it's voter suppression and point to the fact that Minnesotans rejected this on the ballot just nine years ago. This year, it comes amid a steady drumbeat of unfounded accusations that the 2020 election was rigged, and there are proposals in more than 40 state legislatures to restrict voting access. And Republicans use these unfounded claims of voter fraud to justify it. Right. Um, What else? Other things include um, House Democrats putting forward paid family leave and a workers' compensation extension for frontline employees. This was something that they authorized last year. Senate Republicans, meanwhile, are pushing forward with banning cities from enacting rent control. They also want to require abortion clinics to have a licensing, fully reopening schools, and leaving future decisions about school closures to local districts, as well as fighting tougher car emission standards. After all that, let's go through what the legislature came up with, a numbers-only budget. Right. It's kind of like what they say about the weather in March, in like a lion, out like a lamb. That's what this felt like. Walls and top legislative leaders worked over the weekend to come up with these broad, high-level numbers, which amounts to $52 billion over two years. There's a big bump in education spending, $525 million in new funding, which will help pay for summer school to help kids catch up from a year of distance learning. That's what Walls and Democrats wanted. And there's no tax increases, which Republicans had promised. And I'll say it was a lot easier for them to find common ground when all the federal money came in. They're getting an additional $2.8 billion, and as part of this agreement, Walls will get to decide how to spend $500 million of that. And what's interesting is that with this federal money, they've decided to save a lot of it for future years. So they've reached this budget agreement, but that budget agreement includes kicking the can down the road on how to spend some of this federal money. Right. And another final high-level decision that the governor and the leaders decided on was having full tax conformity with the federal government on unemployment insurance and paycheck protection plan loans. Basically, this means that people who were unemployed and collected benefits or businesses who got these loans will not have to pay state taxes on that income. And also, I'll remind people, Monday was tax day. So this news comes after many businesses and Minnesotans had already filed their taxes, not knowing whether they would pay state taxes on that income. Now, if they had agreed to that sooner, that would have made taxes a lot easier for a lot of people. But the reason they didn't, I'm assuming, is because tax conformity is a bargaining chip. Yes, pretty much everything can be a bargaining chip. And rather than getting sent to the governor's Early on, on its own, it got bundled up in these massive budget bills that then get passed at the end of session. Okay, so what do we hear from lawmakers about this high-level budget deal? Well, it's all kumbaya for them. Walls, Gazelk, and Hortman, the leaders, naturally touted it as an example of bipartisanship and compromise. This was their deal, after all. But when there is compromise, there's always going to be some discontent. Kurt Doubt, the House Minority Leader, criticized giving the governor control over half a billion dollars of American Rescue Plan dollars. Who from the legislative branch would ever agree to let the governor spend $500 million on whatever he wanted uh, should turn in their election certificates and and find a new job? Because uh, that is literally what the legislature exists for. And Representative Greg Davids put it this way to Minnesota Public Radio's Brian Baxt. I I would just ask the question, what have we accomplished? What did the Senate Republicans get? I think one word sums them both up. Nothing. 
okay, that's from Republicans. What about the progressive wing of the DFL? Well, progressives didn't criticize the budget. Instead, they joined House Republicans in piling on Senate Republicans. They criticized the Senate for what they called inaction on many top priorities for them, including police reform, which didn't receive any individual airing in the Senate until the final weeks and only during conference committee process. So we have the high-level budget numbers. What's left? Everything, essentially. First, the finer details of the budget still need to be worked out. The governor and the legislative leaders set a new deadline, June 4th, for all these budget spreadsheets and policy changes to be agreed to in order to have a special session by June 14th. The deadline for them to pass a new budget is June 30th. If they don't reach one by then, then big parts of state government are going to begin to to shut down and layoff notices will go out to state government workers in early June. And then there's all the controversial stuff that they haven't yet agreed to. The police reform, vehicle emission standards, executive powers. Right. And with so much money still left to appropriate, it's unclear what, if any, new policy gets decided. And there's still plenty of time for the budget negotiations to fall apart. Okay, Ricardo, final question. What does this session tell us about what to expect in the next year, next two years? Well, Democrats are going to point to this session as an example of what happens when voters elect divided governments. They're going to say Republicans stymied progress. They're going to say Republicans were missing on big policy debates that they wanted to have, while Republicans are just going to point to themselves as being an important check on Democrats' plans to raise taxes. Next year, all 201 lawmakers and the governor are up for re-election. So if we see voters elect divided government again, we can expect to see much more of these same stalemates. Ricardo, thank you so much. No, thank you. (laughs) That's a joke. That was a joke. All right, hold on. Let me try this again. Um, Ricardo, thanks for your reporting. My pleasure. This show was produced by me, Max Nestrak, and edited by Patrick Kulikin. Special thanks to Johnny Vince Evans, who composed our theme music. This show is new. So tell your friends and family about us and tell them to subscribe. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great weekend.